Well, I guess Alpha City is playfully, you know, the, the subtitle of the book is How London Has Been Captured by the Super Rich, but it kind of is about that. Roland Atkinson talking about his new book, Alpha City, how London was captured by the super rich. It is about how money has power and how money has converted and perverted the mission statement of the city, which is to be a place for all citizens. Published by Verso, the book is out any day. And it's kind of undermined that role by enabling and allowing money to destroy its social fabric, to create new rounds of development activity that have given little or no benefit whatsoever to the wider citizenry. And it's a way of thinking about how, when we talk about the rich, we also need to think about the rest of the people living in that city. Now, I've only read four chapters of this book. That's all the publisher sent over. But I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that this book is going to get some serious traction. You're on City Road with me, Dallas Rogers. And we're talking with Roland via Skype about the Alpha City. What is it? Why London? Who are the global elite? And why are they buying up all this real estate? And who are the winners and losers in all of this? Roland's the Research Chair in Inclusive Societies at the University of Sheffield. And he's been researching cities for about 20 years. He's looked at gentrification, public housing renewal, the super rich and property development. And he's bringing it all together in this book. I kick off by asking Roland, what is the Alpha City? Yeah, so the Alpha City, I mean, there's two sort of pathways into that, I suppose. One is the sort of Global Alpha, uh, World City sort of measures, Jonathan Beaverstock and others um, looking at the kind of metrics that you can use to think about dominance within that sort of hierarchy of cities globally. So, you know, the relative porosity of the city in terms of flight patterns, the amount of, of money flowing through the sort of finance economy and, and the way that the finance economy itself it helps to position those sort of apex cities in, in a kind of dominant position within within the global sort of network of cities more broadly. And the other route into this is to think about this in, uh, through the lens of sociodemographic profiling systems. And the, so the idea of the Alpha City comes in part from the Experian classification, that, that particular system of classification of neighbourhoods, which uses Alpha as the sort of the preeminent subspatial scale within the city where the richest, the most um, well-educated, uh, you know, taking particular newspapers, consuming certain consumer goods, that's where the geography within the city where those people are located. So so I'm not, not really trying to say in the book that London is simply the alpha city because I think obviously you run up into very some big arguments quite quickly about who's got the most rich people which is the biggest financial centre and um, all of that kind of stuff and I, I think that's a bit of an unproductive argument and I think the idea of the, the alpha city is something that you could port from London to New York to Hong Kong, Singapore, perhaps Sydney also uh, other centres where you see similar features in terms of this kind of land grab, if you like, by the global wealthy, the migration of 
people from countries around the world into these core urban centres as a means of taking a place at the table of the elite. So in other words, the city becomes central to a broader argument about elite formation and the, the sort of transmission or the, the reworking of finance and money capital into something that is placed. It is situated within class networks. It is situated within a longer history of different elites jostling either for control or for position and status. And the arena within which one does that is the city. You know, you, you can't really do that from a country seat or you can't do that from even a major city perhaps in Africa or Latin America. The sense perhaps is that the big party is happening in a city like London. New York would be another uh, key example, of course. Mm. And that's you want to have a place there as well. So, of course, many of the people who are the, who are the richest have multiple homes. You, you need to be there. You want to be part of this, this scene, essentially. Mm. Why London? Why this place? And so London has this very privileged sort of history in terms of being the midpoint that, you know, that Greenwich meantime, its position as the place from which longitude was measured, allows it to have this very favourable position in terms of uh, trade, uh, in terms of the finance economy, the ability to speak to Tokyo and New York at the same time. It has benefited, you know, in, in that kind of post-colonial sort of moment, it has looked hard at itself and rethought where it sits globally and saw finance as a, as a very important strand of its, if you like, local economic strategy, a development strategy, you know, for positioning London and the UK on the, on the global stage in the post-colonial moment. But mm. space is important to that argument about who the elite is, but also to questions of inequality, which, you know, are certainly not my arguments, but, you know, Sasson, going back to Sasson and, and many other people who have been very exercised about, you know, to say that London is a rich city belies a much, much more complex reality about uh, those urban machineries as massive producers of inequality, that it throws out these individuals at the top, these massively successful winners, and there's an enormous rump of citizens who aren't just not doing very well, but suffer more intensely because they live in an alpha city. That's the kind of perverse sort of mm. uh, outcome that results from that. Mm. Yeah, there's a phrase in the book, I wish I'd written it down, but it's something about a centrifuge where essentially there's two parts to this, where the rich are being sucked into London and the poor are being pushed out. And I think there is something unique about London. There might be something that's transferable. I do think there's something unique about London. I think you're touching on that here. Can you talk to me a little bit about the global elite and the way that they're pushing the urban poor out? Yeah, so, I mean, I go into this in some detail. So again, you know, the book is essentially a story of violence. You know, the way in which particularly the housing system, the way that the property lobby has mobilised and used the circuit of housing, the trade in housing, as a means of unsettling the urban poor in that sense. I mean, in fact, just almost literally before we were talking, I've been going through Loretta Lee's and Phil Hubbard's sort of final statement about their project, showing that 200,000 public housing residents in the city have been displaced in, you know, I think it's roughly the last decade or so. 
this kind of breaking and remaking of the poorer parts of the city in the name of capital investment and also in the name of creating opportunities for affordable housing, new communities, sustainable communities and so on, which have delivered net losses of affordable and social housing in a city which desperately needs it. I think, you know, the latest data has got 50, uh, something like 56,000 people living in temporary accommodation at the moment. So this is sort of very broad brush sort of picture. But as you have these, I mean, first of all, you have the existing wealth elite and the existing political and cultural elite, if you like, of the city. They're still, they're still there, but they are joined particularly over the last decade or two by the winners of this sort of accelerating global economy that would be, let's say, described by analysts like um, David Harvey. The winners in that sort of neoliberal urban settlement come to colonise and take up space in the city. And some of that's through purchasing, you know, the sort of trophy homes of the West End. Some of it is mediated through the development process and the creation of, you know, I think last year we've seen 70 or 80 20-storey-plus high-rise high buildings constructed in the city. Now, that's more than were built in about four, the first 40 or 50 years of post-war high-rise development. So that's been a staggering sort of increase, a staggering step change in the production of an environment that was designed to capture the wealth of this mobile wealth elite, to sort of suck them into the property economy of the city. And it goes without saying that that was a massive lost opportunity in the face of the previous financial crisis of 2008. You saw these arguments being mobilised that if we didn't have the rich, if we didn't have these flows of um, investment capital coming in from the international stage, we would never get these developments being built. But of course, the developments that were being built were built for the wealthy and in many cases were left empty so there was no ultimate sense that this was a of benefit to even the upper middle classes of the city let alone those people languishing on you know the housing waiting list and all and all the rest of it mm. what's the kind of ideological landscape underwriting all of this the broader sort of set of arguments is about how that chase chasing of capital and chasing of the wealthy helped to sort of undermine a kind of mindset within the, what I call the sort of enabling elite, particularly within property, real estate, city political sort of stage, that allowed them to feel that austerity was a kind of justified set of measures, that, you know, that we should pin our colours to the mast of global capital, that's going to lift all boats. Meanwhile, you sort of cut loose the urban poor, essentially, and not only just cut them loose, but then say where the poor live in the city are terrific development opportunities by which we again we can inject investment capital to demolish public housing to accelerate processes of gentrification all in the name of the kind of beautification and increased sustainability of the city but lead to this centrifugal spinning of the poor out into uh, uh, Mm. neighborhoods and uh, towns and cities beyond the city and so one of the wonderful things about Loretta Lee's work is those sort of trajectory maps where you can see people, yes, some people staying in the city, but many people simply exiting London as a whole. So, you know, I, that's why I say there's kind of violence to this, because it's led to a massive burdening in terms of, you know, the psychosocial cost of that is massive in terms of straining, stressing households who have not 
benefited from these massive injections of capital. Now, of course, if you talk to real estate agents, to, to developers, to various politicians and so on, they will say that this has been a, a wonderful gift, um, that we have this fantastic new skyline, we have the shard, we see uh, unending rounds of money coming into the city. I've, but, you know, for a long time, this kind of architecture has been firmly in place. It's be, it has uh, numerous defenders. And I, I argue in the book that that defence is very much about this broad ideological capture, not just of a self-evident, you know, rich political class, but many other people who are quite often marginally positioned in relation to the wealth finance economy, but seek to defend that because actually ultimately they're part of that. The bread and you know their bread and butter comes from the way that the, this economy, this very dysfunctional economy, actually operates. You're on City Road on 2SCR 107.3 FM in Sydney with me, Dallas Rogers. And we're talking with Roland Atkinson about his new book, Alpha City, how London was captured by the super rich. And now we're going to hit the streets of London. I wanted to uh, touch down in the city a bit. And uh, last time I was in the UK, you were telling me about walking around what I think you call alpha hoods, uh, these places of the global elite where they buy properties. And you were talking about walking around with houses with their lights out. Can you take me on a bit of a tour of an alpha hood? So there are five. There's, uh, but So the first one is the sort of patrician heartland. So this is the sort of... The prototypical elite West End of the 18th century onwards. So the kind of stucco-coated, white, very large grand terraced houses of the inner West End. Much of it built by the rich of that moment, speculatively, to accommodate other winners in in the Industrial Revolution that was was sort of producing uh, staggering amounts of wealth at that time. And then there's there's prime London, which is a, a sort of slightly broader geography. So Highgate, say in the north, Wimbledon in the south, which would have been the suburbs uh, of the 19th century, uh, different in terms of density, architecture, and now different in terms of the kinds of people that, that reside there. Then you've got the, uh, moving out of the city entirely, you've got the, but very much connected to the city, are the suburban exclaves. So the gated communities, the very large uh, mansion houses and stately homes in in counties like Surrey, for example. Then we've got the the Riverlands, which is the the kind of recent round in the last decade or, or less, really, of the speculative creation of high-rise, particularly along the sort of Thames corridor, the river lining the, the river, which is often quite a sterile landscape, and that's probably most associated ultimately with the kind of empty home uh, problem, if you like. Much of that brought up by investors. In another study that I did with a colleague, we found that a lot of more or less middle-class Hong Kongers, for example, were buying properties in those developments. Mm. Then finally, there's the ultra, what I call the ultra lands, which are these sort of splinters of super rich development activity that go along, go on particularly in the west end of London within the patrician heartlands. So, the the most obvious example to point to there would be One Hyde Park, uh, 
Candy Brothers, bankrolled by Qatari DR, the sovereign wealth fund of Qatar, which, and Qatar itself owns up own staggering amounts of central London, in fact. Hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more about these sovereign wealth funds? Um, the use of sovereign wealth fund monies to, to buy into real estate to offer some kind of future uh, moving forward as, in their case, natural gas reserves off, offshore run out in really not that, that long, actually, I think 10, 20 years. So the sudden sort of land grab to create different kinds of assets from these, uh, from these other resources. I mean, if you were to sort of settle on one of those areas, I guess ultimately the most encompassing geography is is the heartland, the super prime ultraland sort of configuration in, in the west end of the city, which remains just incredibly important in the cognitive geography of international investors. So the estate agents that you will speak to that operate at the very top end of the market will say, you know, if we have someone who has more or less unlimited budget, we will tend to steer them to these particular locations in the in the West End, in prime London, because that's a safe bet, essentially. But once you actually dig down a layer, you realise where the exclusive, the more exclusive spaces are, the ways in which space boundaries are used, the kind of symbols that are in place that should, that sort of invite certain groups of people and feel intimidating to, to others. Mm. I want to get into the global elite themselves, the people that are buying these properties or individuals, sovereign wealth funds, whoever they are. Can you tell me a little bit about who these people and groups are? And then I want to get into some of the reasons why they buy this real estate. You've already said sovereign wealth funds trying to diversify. I do want to touch on the money laundering aspect too. But first of all, who are these investors? I mean, one way into this is the kind of typology, a pretty loose typology of London's wealth elite that I try and develop in, in the book. The first key group would be old money. And so this is the dynastic wealth. This is the people with large pots of money, many of whom were the new money of 100 years ago. So they were, they're the descendants of the people who did very well out of the, the, the Industrial Revolution, who have managed to hold on to that wealth who've bought real estate or who have invested in ways that have allowed them to secure and maintain a place in the city. But the old money is also about the estates, the landed estates, which I think you know have, have an estimated £20 billion worth of real estate in the central, the core of the city. So, But the estates are very interested, interesting in terms of aristocratic holdings of land, essentially, which have been maintained and over time have just become incredibly wealthy but they're all quite also quite interesting because they are relative breaks on development activity they take the longest possible view in terms of who the city is for uh, so i've heard arguments that you know they will make um, relatively lower rents for pubs so that they can maintain a place in what would otherwise just simply be let rip as a residential market I'm not a massive fan of the aristocratic estates, but I think it's quite interesting how they've operated to conserve. You know, there's an argument about conservation there, albeit a very elite one. So then the second group would be the sort of new money. And that's what we're, you know, really sort of getting into here. So some of that's, that's not really necessarily about the sovereign wealth funds. That's another sort of institutional actor rather than about the individual rich themselves, perhaps. But they're certainly a massively important part of the story here. But in terms of the individual rich, this is people emerging from new technology, 
energy, and that still includes oil to some extent, from telecommunications, people making money from money. So the finance circuit, the hedge fund managers and all the rest of it are an important part of the of the new rich. There's gambling money in there, people who are extracting rents um, from shares and other investments, which become their income and allow them to buy an apartment for 100, and, mm. 100 or so million in One Hyde Park, which is very, uh, mm. you know, extremely secure development. Yeah, I want to know what these individual investors, let's start there before we get to the organisations and um, commercial actors. What do they want this real estate for? What's the value of this real estate? I assume that it's more than just a place to live and more than just a repository for capital. I assume there's other reasons for wanting this real estate. Yeah, so I mean, some of this, some of the map motivations map onto the different groups. So if you look at the old money, some of that would historically have been about social standing, you know, the need to be in the city to be part of the elite whirling uh, circuit that was attached not just to the court uh, historically but also to the the financial center to various kinds of forms of corporate activity so you wanted to be close to work or, and close to the um, the social circuit i think new money the rationales they're different and they're similar so you want to be part of the social circuit there are people certainly who are buying to be in london for you know Above anywhere else in the world, they want to have a place within within that city and within the right neighbourhood in that city. Then you have people, of course, who for whom those purchases are also wrapped up in the idea that this is one of the safest bets imaginable in terms of investment. But the richer you get, the smaller the percentage of your overall wealth holdings that are tied up in, in that real estate. So I think to say people are just sort of in it for the money is less true the richer somebody gets. And then you're into the, the shadier world of the laundering, the criminal networks, the financing of property investment, which has been kind of allowed to let rip without sufficient sort of policing or regulation because it was bringing money into the city. So the, um, the broad estimate there is that, you know, the UK, um, there's about 100 billion flows through the the national economy but also many billions of pounds that have been used to buy from offshore to conceal criminal proceeds and to then release them you know to sell those when it's opportune to to do so down the line and that that is not a small part of the market actually and there's more and more of a movement to say we need a register of beneficial owners to find out what's going on here mm. The, yep. the third one is actually the most important. This is the what, what I call the sort of enabling class or the enablers, the factotums of, of capital, I think I, I, is the expression I use in one place in the book. This is the politicians, the property lobbyists, which comprise developers, real estate vendors, people working in finance. And it's not just sort of lump them all together, but to say that there are significant numbers within those groups whose job it is to kind of mediate the sale of the city to the wealthy and to to do that through encouraging flows of finance and so on. So we've seen these arguments mobilised, as I said, about how in times of recession, you need investment capital. You need the rich. They're the wealth generators. We shouldn't tax the rich because they'll go somewhere else. I don't think that's at all true, actually. The, that group is absolutely critical because they're the sort of they themselves are quite often very wealthy and they're in positions of power, but they are the ones that are sort of critically mediating 
the process by which the Alpha City is, if you like, uh, assembled and mm. emphatically put in place. So who are the winners and losers in all this? So who are the winners and losers in all this? The losers in this system, uh, the losers are, you could sort of say it's the 99%, but I think that's that's maybe being a little bit too sort of playful with it. But really, most people, I think, are the losers in this. If you think about, you know, let's start all, what might appear to be almost at the top. So somebody who's a graduate who works for one of the big four accounting companies, got a very well-paid job, but nevertheless is probably kind of struggling in a house share <laughs> with uh, several other people paying large amounts of money for their housing and wondering about how they're sort of going to navigate that sort of system. And that, so there's these arguments about how people become addicted to the money because they need it to secure even their relatively modest place in this incredibly expensive city. Then you've got the sort of the middle classes and a more established relatively affluent population in the city so this is people who might you know own homes that are worth a million pounds or more but who are themselves pretty exercised about what's going on here who see the london boroughs presiding over the sale of assets of land of any kind of space that can be used to squeeze a buck or two more out of the system who look at the prices of housing and realize that their kids are never going to be able to find a place in the same city who feel alienated by a lot of the physical changes. So the most obvious example of that would be these uh, hundreds of new high-rise towers in a city that was historically a very much a low-rise landscape and who feel very angry about the kind of uh, inequalities, the forms of exclusion that are going on in the city. And all of that's before we get to the, the main bulk, which is, I guess is probably something in the order of the bottom quarter or half of the city who are in some way or another really, really struggling, who have not, you know, kind of come rain or shine, have not benefited from the tremendous gift that is finance capital to the city. And that's where it gets really interesting, I think, because we can see how you know, the arguments being made, for example, for estate demolition, you know, the loss, not the gain, but the loss of housing, rather than saying, let's, we need to start in other parts of the city and create new housing. Let's just break down the the homes of the poorest in the city. Let's displace those communities and kind of start again there, because somehow that will uh, make things right, is an appalling set of outcomes. So, um, and that's in a city in which, you know, simultaneously, these sort of trajectories at the top continue sort of to escape, you know, numerous reports about money laundering, laundering, tax evasion, tax avoidance at the corporate level, at the individual level, the relationship between the offshore tax havens in the city of London. So in that sense, the city kind of stinks, really. It really does not, uh, it delivers in spades to a select, socially selective group of people yeah, is that still the case now? What about COVID-19? How will that play out in this? I was thinking, you know, when I received yesterday my copy of the book, I was thinking, and have been for some time, you know, this story's dead, really, you know. The estate agents have been telling us that, you know, through tax changes, through Brexit, and now through COVID, the market is dead. We're going to have a financial crisis. Uh, there's a social crisis, which is similar and worse to the last of 12 years ago. Well, doesn't that moment of 12 years ago sound a little bit like where we are now? And what are we going to launch ourselves into now 
as the kind of economic template for this city as we move forward. I suspect, particularly given who's in power, it will be arguments about how we need wealth and the wealthy and we need investment capital. And if we can shave off, you know, 2% affordable housing from that provision or give a few million into an affordable housing fund, which never really delivers anything, great, you know. But what we should be doing is saying, you know, it's just not tenable for a developer to think that they should walk in and make 20% profit on a development. It's not tenable that uh, development should be proposed without any provision of affordable or social housing. I think social housing should absolutely be a component. The idea that that's a contaminant to the uh, to the product overall is an outrage. And all of that kind of social chaos has, has gone on within the this sort of superficial veneer of an alpha city you know you dig dig beneath that and you find stress violence uh people really struggling in terms of the of the work economy and all and all the rest of it roland it was so good having you on the show thanks very much dallas been uh, fantastic to to talk to you today Roland Atkinson talking about his new book, Alpha City, how London was captured by the super rich, out very soon by Verso. I'm Dallas Rogers. This is City Road. See you next time.